One smoke broken, the alchemist. When winter comes and the north winds blow, from the gates of hell, white eyes and violet smoke, hide away, young ones, when the candle goes dark, when the stench of death burns your mouth and nostrils, for you won't hear them coming quiet in the night. The cannibal hobs, little children snatching goblins, hairy hulking ogres hunting grown-ups, and doggish ghouls clean their bones. That is, of course, if the hags don't stew them first. The song of the hobs, a sealin' nursery rhyme. I grit my teeth and wince at my stinging palms, squeezing the shaft of the axe as I heft it for another swing. Just a few more and we're done for the day, I promise the ache in my forearms and shoulders. The pickaxe sinks into the soft stone of Old Holmes' deep caves. The sound of steel reverberates. Vibrations bite my hands to the bone and echo throughout the forlorn tunnels. Then there's a thud as a chunk of coal falls to the cavern floor. Another thud as Broken tosses it in with a hundred others. But the sack's already full, she whinges. Can't we go now? The sun will be up soon. The sun, that old tyrant always seething at us cursed creatures. A month ago, the girl evoking its name would have convinced me to finish the job early, for her sake and mine, to avoid the painful rays that come with the dawn. But things have changed. I admit I was worried at first after the Bilar incident. A lot of people came up dead by the end, including the constable, half a dozen of his men, and Vaughn Bilar himself, a bullet to the head from his own death wand. I still hear the shot ringing sometimes when the pickaxe strikes a solid deposit. It's become a reminder that even at the bottom you've always got something left to lose. And though I've been losing a lot lately, I can't say I've not gained some too. Shortly after Deputy Grant found the constable's corpse mangled by Bilar's monster, he was promoted in a village assembly to fill his father's role. He swore on that day to rout out every menace to village south. When Broken told me, I thought for sure we were done for. But then, the very next day, Dr. Edgar announced he was leaving town for Glassboro on a contract with Gaston Mining. I assumed he finished whatever drug he planned to use to pacify the company's gremlins, but I was the only one to know about that. To the town, and especially to the new constable, the doctor's sudden departure seemed at least a little suspicious. Grant and his new team of lawmen most of whom were working in the mines until then, did some digging into the doctor's practice. Didn't take long before they found out he'd been peddling crown, as well as an experimental elixir ten times as potent. But by the time they connected Edgar's elixir to the mysterious deaths among the miners in town, he was already long gone from south. I hate to say it, but I was lost after that. It's not that I didn't expect a betrayal, especially from a human like Edgar. But he was my only ally, my only hospitable contact in the whole village. Losing him meant I wouldn't be able to sell as much crown, if at all, given Grant's new authority. And even if I could, who would sell their goods to a poison-peddling troglodyte? That's what I thought until, one morning about two weeks ago, I awoke startled by Grant's voice booming from the mouth of the vault. Conti! he announced, pounding the butt of his partisan five times on the ground. And his accomplice, the serpent-cursed girl, by order of the constable and the old king's law, come out. I told Broken to hide and met Grant at the entrance. The men he had with him gasped as I stepped into the dizzying light. 
They say a trog's face is terrifying to the human eye. The constable cleared his throat. Where is the girl? Do whatever it is you're here to do, Grant, or leave us be. Damn trog, started one of the lawmen, young by his voice, ignorant by his tone. You is lucky we don't cut you down right now. We know you was working with Edgar and Bilar. It's your fault Pa's gone. You made Ma a widow, and it's you who should pay. Grant slammed the butt of his partisan, spoke slowly and firmly, though I swear I could hear tears welling, damned behind his words. Enough from you. That's not why we've come. Conti broke no laws selling his poison to Edgar. It was the doctor who swore an oath before my father to do no harm to Village South. He swallowed hard and stole a few breaths, projected his voice directly into the cave. That's why we've come. In accordance with my duties as constable, I deliver to you and the cursed girl the results of my legal deliberations. You are both hereby exonerated from the crimes of Dr. Alan Edgar and the banker Vaughn Billar. But Grant! There was a stout snap. As the constable pounded his weapon again, this time on something softer than the smooth stone ground, the young lawman's foot, I presumed. For he loosed a shout loud as a crack of thunder echoes through the vault during a storm. Then they left, no one saying another word. The gesture spoke enough on its own. Broken and I were free to come and go from south unmolested, so long as we obeyed the old king's law. And so now we're here, exploring the depths of Oldholm where the floods have drained, excavating the mineral-rich deposits for salt and coal to sell in town. We're still peddling crown, of course. The demand among the miners is as constant as ever, but without Edgar to handle distribution, fewer are buying out in the open. So we supplement. Now that my name is cleared, they're willing to barter, albeit with loathing. Prices are twice as high for me and Broken, and we have to sell for half as much as the others. However, that means we undercut Gaston. To the village's benefit, and to our own. Our loads sell out first thing every morning for more money than I've ever owned in my life. It's made me realize how big a cut the doctor had been taking, but I've put that behind us. Now we can buy real cloaks instead of rough woolen sheets, linen wraps and shoes for the girl's feet, this pickaxe, a lantern, a wheelbarrow, and last but not least food that we've never been able to afford to eat. Beef, pork, mutton, and pheasant. Just thinking about it makes my stomach rumble. Just one more chunk and we can go, I promise Broken. I'll buy a supper after we sell our load. She cheers up at the mention of food. Can we have bacon today? It's been enough time, hasn't it? Sure, I say, though it's only been a few days. Where's the next deposit? Broken leads me a dozen paces deeper into the cave and shows me where the minerals jut rough from the wall. I swing the pickaxe and meet a bit more resistance, cleave off a smaller portion, then ask... Harder than before. Is it salt? Cinnabar, she says. Does that mean we have to dig more? I place the sulfurous rock atop the sacks of salt and coal in our wheelbarrow. No, this is plenty, I answer. It's just what I need to finish another batch of black flame. It takes about an hour to get to town, pushing our hand-me-down barrow over rocky soil and root-gnarled forest. By the time we arrive, the sun's come up and is shining bright its nauseating rays. We look for shade under our usual tree, a big, noisy, fragrant evergreen they say is as ancient as Sealand itself, and find it stinking with lips and feet flapping impatiently. 
damn trog, they say. It's about time. You're late. Got any crown with you today? You sure I can't buy that skull from you? Can I pay you in barter? I've got some eggs here and... On and on and on it goes for the next half hour before we sell our cart clean and I can finally smell the fresh needles and hear the birds singing in the branches above us. Broken hums along with their happy song, jangling our fat purse for a beat. And for a moment, I just listen and breathe the air, sweet with leaves and with meat cooking on spits over the hearth of a nearby tavern. Speaking of which, supper is eggs and bacon on fried dough at our usual place, an inn and wine tap named the Hellgates after the miasma-rich foothills of the northern mountain range. It's a cool, dim place, the inn. I've never been to the mountains, and the owner even lets us sit inside his filthy common room. His name's Maddock, an old miner, if such a thing truly exists, who got out of the business before Gaston came in and bought the whole operation. Rumor has it that decades ago he got lost in the tunnels on his way to work. They say that no one saw him for three whole days before he finally emerged carrying something in his arms the size of a child. Maddox's customers, all miners themselves, like to play drinking games at guessing what it was. A ruby or emerald is the usual consensus, but today there isn't any talk of games. You really think Grant will go for it? One of the miners asks. Another replies, Doubt it, his old man never would. Don't see why we're even trying. What choice do we have? Yeah! Maddox's voice booms over the crowd. Quiet down, you damn coal trogs! He pops the cork on a cask of barley wine, sloshes himself a drink as Broken and I approach the bar. Oh, hell, he says. It's too early for this shit. First the shifters, and now the real thing. Though I guess you're a night shifter too now. What are they talking about? I ask him. Ask them yourself. Now, what are you having? The girl rests a box of eggs gently onto the bar, then slams down a couple of copper coins, shouting, The Lord of Fear demands the unborn be scrambled and served with the flayed flesh of pig belly. The table behind us bursts into laughter. One of the miners even slips off his stool. I sink into myself, regretting I ever decided on that title and lamenting that I still can't live up to it. At least the headdress hides my face so no one can witness my embarrassment. No one save for Broken. She sees right through me and jumps to my defense. You laugh now, but you wouldn't be laughing if he hadn't killed Mr. Bilar's monster. You'd be dead as the constable's men all torn to little pieces. That's right, I think, feeling the satchels of black flame stuffed into my cloak pockets, the thought lifting my spirits. That's true. It was us who killed that abomination. It was... A voice shoots from the crowd. What are you talking about, girly? Grant says he killed that thing. Yeah, Kevin came back with scars to prove it. Quiet down, I said, booms Maddock again. He swipes the copper pieces off the bar and drops them into what sounds to be a money box behind the counter. Eggs and bacon, girl. It's called eggs and bacon. It'll be on the bar in a few minutes. His heat trace vanishes into the inn's sweltery kitchen. Behind me, the table resumes their hollow-headed chuckling. I could give you something real to laugh about, I want to say to them as I turn around, but instead all that comes out is, what was it you were all just talking about? Sorry, one of the miners says. It's private business, Trog. Another miner interjects, wait, didn't Grant clear him of suspicion a while ago? Maybe he'll listen to him. 
The crowd grumbles while I deliberate torching their table. They reach a consensus. All right, Mr. Fear, we'll let you in. Traders up from Glassboro been saying that Gaston just got their greedy fingers on an elixir to control their slaves better, probably from that bastard Edgar. Anyways, they're still in the testing phases right now, but rumor has it that if it works out down there, Gaston's going to start shipping gremlins up here to work in the mines. They already pay us a pittance and now they're giving our jobs to Hobbs. Filthy scabs! Yeah! I interject before Maddock has to yell from the kitchen. And what does that have to do with Grant? We want to set up a miners' guild here in South. Try and ban gremlins on grounds of safety and quality control. But to do that, South needs to erect a town hall and appoint a marshal, steward, and treasurer. Politics, huh? I feel my interest slipping. That doesn't answer my question. One of the other miners responds, We're hoping he'll make an exception to the law. South don't have enough people to do a town hall, so Grant's old man would always tell us to piss off. But maybe now we got a chance, the prior man says, slapping the other on the back. Go on, get your ass up and do something useful. Get the boy in here so the trog can speak for us. Don't hold your breath, I sneer behind the bone headdress while the doltish coal miner's boots hammer half-drunk out the door. Then it hits me. The aroma of fried bread, eggs, and bacon, long before Maddock drops our platter onto the bar. Broken takes the plate to our designated place, an upended barrel with warped lames and a couple of two-and-a-half-legged stools stowed in a shadowy corner, enough away from the regulars that I can actually gather my thoughts. We need a new lead. I've had the girl studying Bilar's notes for a while now, and we've translated most of the tome containing the resurrection spell. But there's still something missing. Something to bind the dead spirit to my will, and to keep it from turning like Bilar's wife did. Though that might be useful in the future, I muse about letting loose one of those monsters on some bigoted village folk. But just as soon as I do, I hear again the click, scratch, ping, and explosion. Then I think again, caution. You don't want to be the next Vaughn Biller. Can't he? Broken's voice snaps me from my rumination. Yeah, what is it? I wish we could have bacon every day. I sigh and reach over our steaming supper to pat the girl atop her head. My only thrall and seer, this serpent-cursed girl thrown out by the world, the town, and her own parents. What does it say about me that she is my sole follower? A child who's reliant on crown caps to bear the suffering intrinsic to her mere existence. I guess we're not so different in that. Pathetic. One day, I say, we will be strong enough to take back the happiness the world has stolen. We'll be strong enough to take revenge on everyone who abandoned or rejected us. Then, when that time comes, we'll have bacon every single day. You promise? I crunch a strip of the stuff between my teeth, savor the salty fat in it, and answer by saying, I swear it on the memory of the clan of the antler. We will swathe village south in a cloud of black flame. The door flies open, and this time it's two pairs of boots drumming the floor. The first pair thuds of drunken familiarity, the second of sobriety, of an orderly, measured temper. Before he ever speaks, I recognize Constable Grant. So too do the miners. They jump up from their benches in a clambering of feet, whispering too loudly not to be overheard of how this time they'll finally be able to fight back against the company. That's what this is about. Grant questions the man who brought him in. You told me the trog was causing trouble. 
I get a laugh out of that. Yes, Constable, you've got me guilty again. I've spent the whole morning doing naught but peddling poison and devouring the poor souls of unborn chickens. I don't have time for this, he replies, hot under the collar and indignant as ever, but the miners aren't about to let him go. It seems a few have blocked the door and refused to move till he hears them out. And as far as I can tell, Maddox's nowhere to be found. I'm sorry, Constable, starts the dolt, but I knew you wouldn't come unless I told you a good reason. Please, we need your help. Hear us out. Yeah, Grant sighs in palpable lamentation. Fine, it's my duty to protect the people of South, no matter what the threat. But make haste about it. Part of protecting the people means completing my patrols. We've asked the Trog to speak for us, says one of the miners. We understand you've got some trust with him. The constable responds to me directly. What lies did you tell these simple folk? Nothing, I answer honestly, and explain the situation just as the situation was explained to me. Every aching bone in my body expects Grant to dismiss this request under the law of the old king, and it seems my bones would make for good fortune telling. But like any act of divination, a degree of the unexpected sneaks in. He says with the same substantial sadness from before, I'd like to be able to help you. Truly I would. However, the old king's statutes in this regard are well codified. I, as constable, cannot in good conscience allocate village funds to an illegal enterprise. It would be an abuse of power, and besides that, South has got more pressing dilemmas at the moment. You mean the money you've got to pay back for what Billar stole? Maddox's voice rumbles from behind the counter without so much of a whinge from the creaky floorboards. Was he there the whole time? I could have sworn to the patriarch he'd gone. How did you... Grant starts. The innkeeper cuts him off. Because I happen to have had a hefty sum stored with that bastard more than you're going to be able to fetch from your acquisitions. Don't be so certain. We've seized his home and everything left inside. Everything left, but that wasn't much, was it, Grant? Rumor is that the basement got burned to ashes, and what the fire didn't get, the smoke did. And you think someone in Village South would buy that damned house? Your pa might have taught you the law, boy, but he didn't teach you any sense. There's silence after that, a quiet that normally I'd be eager to fill with some jab at the constable. But at the moment I'm torn between reveling and fretting. That tome we stole is worth more than Bilar's house, it's like purchasing a new cloak to discover its pockets are stuffed with gold. Gold that the constable could have my head for. Lucky for me, then, that no one believes Broken and I were ever inside the property. Canty, Grant says, breaking the silence. A glaze of cold sweat covers the back of my neck. You worked with Dr. Edgar peddling your mushrooms, correct? If you're still in contact with him, perhaps we can sell him his amnesty. Convince Gaston that they need him here for a steady supply of his gremlin elixir. Oh, it's this again. I've already told Grant a hundred times that I've no idea where in Glassboro the doctor went, and that we didn't part on friendly terms, at least as far as I'm concerned, especially now that I know how much that bastard cheated me. But just as I'm about to explain it all again, the miners interrupt. You can't be serious, Constable. He killed Len and Bran and John and Hale. We're not letting him back here unless it's for a hanging. And the gremlins, too. Tell Gaston they're not welcome here. Yeah, Maddox shouts them down. That's enough. I'm sick of listening to your whinging. To the constable, he continues. And you, boy, 
That's a desperate plan, and you know it. Then what would you have me do? Grant replies without a word of denial. And that's how the constable Broken and I become envoys on a mission to nearby Marigold. It's a brilliant strategy for an innkeep. Sell Bilar's property to one of the city's guilds or the Union Church. The proposed profit is threefold as Maddock lays it out. First is the money from the sale itself. The people of Marigold are far richer than those of Village South, and their institutions more so. Even if Grant charged an exorbitant amount, it might still be cheap in the eyes of such organizations. And that's where the second profit comes in, in the form of taxation. While the church won't tolerate being taxed for their operations, the guilds most certainly will, especially at a cost that would seem small compared to the city taxes and tithes imposed in Marigold. The last profit Maddock calls the herd. An influx of new bodies means more money for South, more people paying in that won't need a payout from Bilar's embezzlement. There will be more trade, more tax revenue, and best of all, less dependence on foreign organizations. South could build its town hall and the miners their guild, and they could vote to keep the gremlins out. It sounds perfect at first, except that Grant has never sold a thing in his life, has never had to haggle or compromise. As deputy and now constable, he's become accustomed to commanding, demanding, and dictating orders. And though I enjoy the thought of him bumbling about without a law to quote in front of representatives from the guilds and church, we have a second problem. He's decided to conscript me and Broken as Village South's only authorities on natural philosophy and the occult. Trouble is that we're not authorities on anything, and even if we were, it wouldn't matter. The Union Church has a stranglehold on Marigold and a vendetta against everything Elf, Hob, and Fairy ever since the Miasma stole over the northern mountain range. Hundreds of homes, temples, and relics lost. Countless lives expunged in a matter of days. A graveyard left untended for centuries, until now. I wonder if the expedition has happened yet, and speculate at what they might discover. What I regret that I've missed. Fine, I agree. I was looking for a new lead anyway, and it's not as though I'm like to find one here in South. But we'll need disguises, something to cover our skin, or else the church will lock us all up in gibbets. Grant inhales slowly through his nostrils, mulls it over, and exhales out his mouth even slower, as if his contemplations are a candle he's being careful not to blow out. Then he says to Maddock, You've thought this through quite well. It must have taken you some time, perhaps since my father announced the warrant for Billar's arrest. That's a significant investment for a simple businessman. Suspicious, huh? The innkeeper replies, a kind of wryness hidden in his voice. What can I say? I had a significant investment in Vaughn Billar's bank, and as a simple businessman I'd like to recoup my losses. Simple businessmen in a year don't make half the amount indicated on the bills of sale. Maddox's tone sharpens. Are you in or not? The constable lets out another long, cautious, deep-chested breath before he responds. I have no choice. We'll depart tomorrow at dawn. It's going to be another long day, isn't it, Canty? Broken asks after supper as we explore the open-air market. I promise that it'll be fun, like the time we went shopping for shoes and cloaks. That seems to appease her while we provision for the journey. Necessities first. 
backpacks, water skins, dried meat rations, and a shaft of waxed ash wood for a walking stick. All that we get for about 160 copper pieces. The rest, namely a pair of disguises, we gather from things we have at home. It's an expensive morning, but I'm happy once it's done and we've slept through midday and most of the evening. Then we wake to the cool comfort of the night, stuff our new bags full of books and mushrooms, fold blankets into rolls, and practice speaking the spell words translated in Bilar's notes. Come dawn. We meet Grant at the southern edge of the village where the canal feeds back into the eastern fork of the River Deep. It's at least three days' march from here to Marigold, but only one by boat, according to the merchants. None of us knows how to sail or row, though, nor can we afford a pole boater's fare, so three days it'll be in the company of the old king's thrall. We start our journey, me expecting nothing but monotonous footfalls on a travel-hardened road and nausea from the sun the whole day long, but the sky shines dim, and the breeze blows cool with the flow of the river, and the wrapping of feet is masked by, of all things, talking. It's all business at first, things we've already discussed, like which guilds we'll each be inviting. Broken and I will visit the Apothecary's Guild and Marigold Mystics on account of our supposed occult expertise, and Grant says he'll handle the Union Church and the Guild of the Golden Anvil. And mayhap even the Machinist Guild, if we get desperate. Unlikely that it is that they'll have the resources to expand. Humans have only failed to replicate anything built by gremlin hands. And for similar reasons, he's likewise doubtful the armorers possess the necessary funds. They've been on the decline ever since the discovery of transmogrification. Breastplates just don't cut it against the prevalence of death wands. It's at this point I realize that he's trying to fill the silence, that the free and open air is too fickle for him. I suggest as much, just to see how he'll react. As expected, he denies it in a tirade about preparedness and procedure and the importance of order to propriety, so that adherence to the law can be maintained. And when I question this, the very core of his worldview, he can't believe it at first. He stammers, Woo! What do you mean, why is it important that the law be maintained? We'd all be dead without the shelter of our institutions. Bandits and Hobbes would have their way with us all. Would have hundreds of years ago already if the old king never drove them to the fringes of the island. Not all of them, I say. Some he shunted underground where they got along just fine without his laws. And what's happened to them now? I should have known that was coming, but I didn't. So now I'm seething, squeezing the satchels in my pockets, thinking, maybe I'll show you tonight when you're sleeping their fate by the black flame. I think this, mull on my anger and feel ashamed that I'm not brave enough to say the words aloud. I'm nothing but a coward. I'm... Broken cuts in. Now the Lord of Fear is rescuer of Village South. First, he slew the monster Mrs. Billar with magic fire, and second, he's going to free the miners from the bad man Gaston. Humiliation washes over my face as I wait for Grant to burst into laughter, but it never happens. Instead, the constable clears his throat and says in his voice of utmost authority, The case of Mr. Vaughn Billar has been closed. He relaxes his tone. So what you're saying, girl, cannot be officially added to the legal record. But if I understand you correctly, you're claiming that Canty's the one, and not me, who delivered the killing blow to that beast. Impossible. 
It's true, she shouts, defiant. You only slowed it down, stabbing it in the heart. But it came back to the basement, and Lord Canty killed it with fire, just like Billar said in his journal. She's already rustling through her pack before I recognize what's happening. Broken, no, but it's too late. See, she says, showing him the record and translation notes. It says in here that you can't kill it with death wands, so you can't kill it with partisans either. Let me see this. He says that he'll read it as we walk. We're working on the public purse, after all. And so all's quiet for a while. Nothing but the bluster of the wind and the rhythm of marching. And I don't know whether to hang my head, embarrassed, or to shudder in fear now the constables discovered that we stole evidence from the crime scene. It's only when Grant speaks again that I realize I was wrong twice, that I should be grateful to Broken for standing up to him. Here, he says, returning the record. Then after a pause, this explains the strange new stain we found in the basement. We thought it was the product of some failed experiment we'd overlooked, but I can't believe it. I let that monster breach South's borders while I was hours away. It could have slaughtered the whole village before I ever knew. Father trusted me with just one duty, and... The dam holding back his tears at last ruptures. With water in his voice and pain and shame as well, the constable admits in words of venom. And I had to be rescued by two filthy degenerates. What does that make me? Just another one of us I don't have the courage to say. So onward we march, three days under a sky that smells like rain, and two nights I lay half awake on an itchy pile of hay in a roadside tavern stable. Are we there yet? Broken asks each evening we lodge, and I tell her, not yet. It's the same words as the haunting thoughts that keep me awake late into the night. They nag worse than our horses bedding. You're not there yet, not even a bit. Powerless, worthless, you heard it yourself. Grant was ashamed to be saved by you, the same as I feel about my dependence on the girl. Eventually, during that second night, I eat a crown cap to dissolve my thoughts and hopefully make room for sleep, though I know as I swallow the spongy mushroom that there's no escape, truly. My worries will follow me into my dreams. They always do. Yet this night, as I slip into sleep, for a moment I don't just see who I am, but also who I could be, someone else. Pale, like myself, yet blackened with soot and the dust of the earth, and muscled, his skin striped by the sinews underneath as he swings the pickaxe and cleaves another hunk of salt, of coal, of crystalline nitre. Could it be, I ask myself, could this stranger be me? Then the old tyrant rises and stirs us awake. It's the third day of our journey. Over a breakfast of hard bread and jerky, Grant lets us know that we're ahead of schedule that we should arrive at Marigold well before nightfall, and should therefore don our disguises and rehearse our story. We're survivors of a mining explosion, as far as the City Watch and Union Church are concerned, wrapped head to foot in layers of bandages to hide our disfigurement. You really think this is going to work? I ask, nervous, when we're on the road again. The constable seems more confident than he did days prior as he responds. I'm staking my honor on it, Trog. So long as you two don't go fouling it up, I see no reason that we should worry. You got all that? I ask the girl. She responds, throwing her hands into the air, calling out, Yes, Lord of Fear, I mean, Canty the Coal Miner. It's your fault when they kill us, I say to Grant, hanging my head. You're the one who dragged us into this. 
We've done no wrong by the old king's law. Our story is honest, and those parts we omit do not constitute conspiracy. Like I said, there's no reason to worry. Just do your job, and we can go home with our heads held high. You won't be ashamed of needing the help of a couple of degenerates? The constable pauses, starts and stops a few times before he says, If we can complete this mission successfully, and South really does raise its own town hall, we can alleviate a lot of our people's suffering. I meant it when I said I was amenable to the Miners' Guild, and a trade house could keep the merchants from gouging us. We could open a school and a hospital, and maybe our village could become a city of its own. Father never thought it possible before Gaston bought the mines, and afterwards our prospects seemed even worse. But now, his voice swells, now we can do something that would surely make Father proud, and maybe even the old king. We have this opportunity to bring honor to the whole of Village South. And for that, yes, I'm willing to take the help of a couple of degenerates. He pauses again. The way humans do when they're looking at you, like they're seeing something inside your soul. And who knows, he finishes, perhaps this will shape you two into proper citizens. Don't hold your breath, I think, calculating how much black flame I've stowed away in the vault, in tunnels below the mountain, beneath the village in key spots. Enough to enact my wrath and turn south to ashes, though most of those satchels are without proxilic spirit. Even if I ignited them, there would be no black flames. No one would recognize that I was responsible. They would die never knowing their guilt or shame. Then what would I be left with? Nothing. Not even the satisfaction of revenge, nor the power to punish the others. Cynic, Glassboro, Berg, and Marigold. We approach the city checkpoint by the cool of the evening to the clatter of wagon wheels, the grunts of mules, and the mutterings of caravanners hammering spikes into the ground, pitching tents, lighting fires under cooking pots that smell of stew and fish and bone broth. My mouth is watering, my body's exhausted. The only thing keeping me going is the prospect of supper and sleeping in an actual bed in a marigold inn. I've only ever imagined the comfort of feather pillows, a hay mattress, and linen sheets. And I'll only ever imagine. My dream shatters as I listen to Grant handle the taxes for entry. Apparently the city is in quarantine under the orders of the church. Something about a hob spotted along the river and the yokel's children gone missing. No one is allowed inside until the offender has been detained or slain. The Union Church has only one penalty for being a hob or an elf or anything else other than human. And they're even offering a reward. Grant claims as he explains the situation fully. We're to make camp for the night and join the hunt come the early morning. We've come too far to be delayed, but if it is us to catch this criminal, surely the church would look charitably on us. So Broken finds us a space while Grant and I rent a spare tent from a disgruntled merchant who gouges us for a few bowls of stew. Now it's the constable who's grumbling about exceeding his budget. But at least we've got food and something to keep off the elements. Yet for me, it's another sleepless night. My legs cramp in the cold, pained and restless. And to make matters worse, we're running low on Crown. We've got just enough to keep the girl going until we get back home, assuming this hob hunt doesn't drag longer than a day. 
assuming there even is a hob out there. I'm doubtful. Children get lost or thrown away more often than humans like to think. The truth is that it's probably been a bad harvest this year, and the yokels can't afford the extra mouths. I shiver at the thought or the frigid ground I don't know. Nonetheless, my legs cramp, and I take it as an omen to give up on rest. I sneak outside the tent. Not far from us, a bonfire crackles and sizzles as it's fed fresh pieces of wood. Sounds more inviting than lying here in the cold. I feel my way over, with my walking staff first, then with the warmth and the surrounding whispers. They belong to two men, engaged in mischievous business by the sound of them, like how the miners used to speak buying crown from me before I had Edgar as middlemen. I listen for details, but they notice me before I catch any. Who goes? One man asks, his accent soft as breath. The other is not so polite. Don't move, he says in an attempt to be threatening. I listen for the click of a hammer, hear none, so I call his bluff. Or what? What do you mean, or what? I'll put a quarrel in your chest. The soft accent interjects. Wait, hold on, Nostius. He speaks to me directly. Stranger, come forward into the light. What is it you want from us? I walk toward the breathy voice until my staff knocks the burning logs. Pretending the gesture was intentional, I answer, I was hoping you'd share your fire with me. Our tent is too cold and I couldn't sleep. Our? asks the sharper man. Who is our? Where are you from and what's your business in Marigold? Be calm, Nostius. And you, I recognize that accent. You're from Village South, yes? That's right, I say. Surprised to hear that I have an accent, but glad enough to explain myself so long as it means I get to bask by the bonfire. I tell them the tale that Grant and I agreed upon, and that seems to satisfy them enough to drop their guard. We introduce ourselves. The soft man is Van Edwin, a curio trader from Berg far to the north and west on the opposite end of the miasma-infested mountains. The other is a local guild member and apothecary. His name is Nostius, and between him and his merchant friend he proves by far the more curious. Village South, huh? He says. That's a wild settlement, according to all the rumors. Is it true you've got Hobbs living in town, and no parish or council but a constable for governance? No Hobbs, not even gremlins, are allowed into the village for fear of what might happen so close to the miasma. But there are others. Cursed children and troglodytes, living just outside South's borders. They've started coming into town regularly now, selling coal and mushrooms at the morning market. Not so different from the rest of the yokels. I trail off, stricken by my description of myself and broken. The crown vision I saw last night flashes before my eyes. The stranger cloaked in dust and soot. Then suddenly as it appeared, I'm returned to the present darkness. As for the rest, that's why we're here. We're hoping to convince the church or one of the guilds to purchase some property in South. Nostius hums like a toad's croak. Troglodytes? Are they some kind of elves? Wait, never mind, we can discuss it later. For now, I've got an idea. A proposition for you and your group. You've probably heard by now about the expedition planned for next year? Well, I'm to be the guild representative in that venture. What he means to say, Van Edwin Japes, is that he was the only one mad enough to volunteer. That's what they whisper behind my back. But they're all just cowards and thieves. 
too afraid to take risks in their own experiments, but eager enough to steal the credit from those who do. They'd have never discovered the antitoxin without my trials in the transmogrification cells. Said I'd turn into an elf myself, spending so much time down there. But how else were we to uncover the link between the miasma and the changed? What does this have to do with Village South? I ask. Nastius lowers his voice to a whisper. Everything. You don't know how difficult it is to get any novel idea approved in Marigold. All guild experiments have to be reviewed by a blasphemy board of appointed unionists. If you knew just how much they hamper progress, anything time-sensitive or that requires prohibited material is nearly impossible. Likewise, anything of real interest that we find on that expedition is likely to be confiscated or worse, destroyed if the church gets their hands on it. But what if... What if what? What if the guild sets up shop where they don't have eyes and ears and the hands to enforce their authority? So long as no one reports what we'd be doing up there in the pagan wild, the guild could operate here without any trouble. And South would make a good place to launch the expedition as well. And a good place to hide our findings. Yes, I cheer inside, realizing that I've just single-handedly saved Village South. And I wasn't even trying. I can't wait to hear the stammer in Grant's voice when he finds out I've already found a buyer. Excited, I ask, so the Apothecary's Guild is willing to expand into the village then? There's a pause, a terribly uncomfortable pause, then an ominous hum before finally he answers, not likely, or what I should say is that the guild heads aren't likely to fund it. We wouldn't even be considering the expedition if it weren't financially backed by the church, and south? Well. It's a losing game. No profit to be made on such a small population. However, this time I wait for him to continue on his own. If I could fund the expansion myself, I don't see why the higher-ups would disapprove. Are you feeling up for a hob hunt, Mr. Canty? You want to use the reward from catching the hob. Make the church pay it. Nastius pats me on the shoulder. You're a quick one. I like you, and I think I'll like living free in the north. But let's not count our chickens just yet. We've got to catch the bugger first. Are you ready now? We're hunting in the dark. Got to get a head start somehow. It's not a problem, is it? That makes me chuckle. No. What else is the world but dark for the likes of me? Look at you, Van Edwin laughs at the apothecary. You've turned into a regular adventurer, my friend. But have you forgotten what brought you out here to begin with? I haven't forgotten. I just didn't want my business hung out in the open. No offense, he sighs, then returns to the merchant, though I suppose it's safe. Here's your gold. There's an exchange between the men, a jangling purse for some silent thing. Curious, I can't stop myself from asking. Turns out it's an ancient alchemical tome, and all at once the connections become blatant. You're the merchant who sold that book to Bilar, Van hushes me, hissing. Not so loud, but yes, that was me. How is Vaughn doing? He enjoyed his purchase, I hope. I fill him in on the gist of what happened in the old catacombs, and he listens without so much as a single guilty expression, commenting only at the end with a tisk and an I told him to be careful. Nastius clears his throat. Ahem, are we done? We've got work ahead of us and the midnight oil's burning. One last thing. I can't let such good fortune slip through my fingers. I ask Van when he'll be in South again. 
And when he says he hadn't planned another stop until the spring, I bring my purse from beneath my cloak. I know it's light, but is there anything I can buy along the lines of Bilar's purchase? He takes the pouch, tosses it a few times in his hand. For this much, not a chance, though I do have a few items of interest I'd be willing to sell on credit. I've got a transcription of a translation of the ancient legends of Gerard the Giant Slayer. Originally, I wanted to sell it as a set with that tome I sold to Vaughn. I believe the previous owner had it made as a reference for places to test his spells. But Bilar didn't have an interest. I do. What else have you got? Just this, he says. It's an old-style hat, wide-brim to keep off the weather and other distractions. And the long-pointed crown is supposed to keep stray thoughts from escaping. Or so, that's what I've been told. Either way, it's of quality make. Inked rabbit felt, if I'm not mistaken, silk-lined and waxed. Deal, I say, and we work out a price to be paid in installments. I'm to provide 20 pounds of salt, as well as food, drink, room, and board once each spring when he stops in Village South on his way back from Berg. Van returns my purse. Now I believe we've kept our friend waiting long enough. I'll hold these for you until the morning. Finally, Nastius croaks, and we're off marching for the River Deep, or the Silver Quick as they call the shallow stretch that winds outside the city. The apothecary explains the geography as we walk along what is apparently a floodplain come the rains in the spring. He says Marigold's farmers and fishermen build their houses here for that very reason, and I believe it. Even cold as it is, the soil feels moist and firm under my feet, the complete opposite of South's root-gnarled earth and weather-worn caves. Not likely their children are starving then. Absent-mindedly, I mutter, so there really is a hob out here. We get a few every year, though usually fewer when the yield is high. But when it's low, they smell despair in the air and crawl out of whatever holes they've been hiding in. Despair? In Marigold? Like I said, the yield isn't always high, and even when it is, it just gives the church and council another reason to squeeze. This year alone, they raised both the taxes and tithes. Doesn't matter how much food you produce when you can't afford the price of tools or medicine. The smart ones pack up for Glassboro or Cynic. Those that stay have to break their backs just to subsist in poverty, while guild positions dwindle with each passing year. People get desperate, greedy, and resentful. They make pacts with the Hobbs, trade children for gold, sometimes others, sometimes their own. I swallow hard the disgust in my throat. You think that's what happened now? Hard to know. The church works diligently to keep it quiet, but I suppose we'll find out soon enough. Nastius rustles through a bag, pulls something out that makes a cracking sound. Damn clouds. I hate to waste a chem lamp on a goblin, but I can't see my hand in front of my face. Tell me about it, he laughs. You and I are going to become good friends. Come on, the first house is just ahead. And so we rove the marigold countryside, knock on doors in the night one house at a time, and get the same sad sap useless stories. A child's bed found empty come morning, a neighbor's son gone missing, a daughter disappeared in the middle of the night. Most say they didn't see anything, and those who do give conflicting reports. It was a small, white-eyed thing, like a wild cat with long, pointy ears and knife-like fingers. Or, by the patriarch, I never saw something so ugly in my life. 
so thick and hairy with tusks like a hog. I ask Nastius what he makes of it, and he says he has an idea, but that we still have one more farmhouse to visit before he's sure. It's nearly morning as we arrive at the last residence along the river. Perhaps my feet are numb from the cold, but the ground feels different here, dry and crumbly. And the creaking porch steps don't help my nerves any, nor does the apothecary's sudden shallow breath, the thud of a dropped chem lamp, nor the loading of a bolt. What is it? I whisper. Blood seal on the front door. It marks a house as welcome to a hob pact. Usually folks are smart enough to wash them off before dawn. When they're not, it's usually because... Because what? What does it mean? At first, Nastius refuses to answer, muttering inaudibly to human sensitivities. We're not equipped to deal with this if it's what I think it is. Then openly he speaks. It means we're going inside. Grab the chem light. It's right at your feet. Hold it above your head and keep your ears open. I follow his instructions, though the unnatural cold of the phosphorescent lamp doesn't help my nerves. Nor does the thud of his boot, nor the door's whinging hinges. My right hand grips my staff tight as the tension is thick like the air in my lungs perfusing the blood pumping through my heart, trembling like my left hand does holding up the lamp. Sweat soaks the bandage wrap covering my face and neck. We take a step forward into naught but silence, then another step forward. Nastius curses again under his breath. The whole damn family, they ate them all. We need to go, he says aloud. Back to the checkpoint, now. I don't question him until we're out of the house, running south along the river, every breath like breathing flames. And when I do ask, he's finally willing to explain. Says he'd been denying it himself until just now, that we're dealing with an adult human transmogrification. When a child is stolen by or traded to a hob, if it is not consumed by the rise of the moon of the following midnight, it becomes like them, a horrid little thing clawed, fanged, and voracious for human flesh. That's how they grow, at least so says the church, by feeding on the sin which taints humanity. But when it's a man instead who becomes one of them by joining voluntarily a hobgoblin's feast, his tainted soul is already too gluttonous for the lesser form. He transforms into a bloodthirsty ogre, strong as a boar and just as hard to kill, with tusks that gore and claws that rend iron. That's what's been haunting Marigold the last few nights, hunting children in their homes, singling out the most desperate, those who suffer most, children like broken. My stomach turns at the notion. Fortunately, all seems quiet when we return to the camp, save for the sounds of us huffing and the snoring of Van Edwin fallen asleep in front of his smoldering bonfire. Nastius shakes him awake, feeds fresh kindling to the flames while the merchant yawns the grog from his voice. Got him already? Them, the apothecary answers. There's been an adult transmogrification. Keep your fire going, he says to me while rustling through his belongings. You said you came here with your constable? Go wake him up and make sure he's got his death wand ready. I'll transmute the bullets, then we can kill this thing when it tries to break into the city. I hear the slam of the butt of Grant's partisan echo in my memory. But before I can explain that the former deputy can't yet bear the emotional weight of carrying his late old man's badge of office, the temperature drops, and I feel the sudden darkness swallow us even through the layers of bandages. 
They're here. Hurry, Nastius commands, and I make it maybe two steps from the smothered flames before I realize that I've lost my way back to our tent. Panic sets in. I'm such an idiot, I think, hearing movement ahead of me, dragging feet nailed and heavy, and a second pair, silent but for the crunch of hoary morning dew. Then loud and clear is the growl of canvas tearing. The girl screams, and I'm racing toward the noise, tripping over ropes and wood piles till I can smell the rancid breath of the hobs like rot and iron. Canty! cries Broken. Then Grant's voice breaks through. Get down! he shouts, and there's the sound of sudden plunging of iron through hair and flesh, then an eruption of guttural snarls as the constable groans, holding the ogre on the spear end of his partisan. The girl cries again, in front of you. I hear it, the little feet, the heavy breathing of the goblins sneaking through the dark. It must think I can't sense its presence, for it makes no attempt to deviate its course as I hoist the ashwood staff high behind my head and bring it down like I'm striking diamond. The blow connects. Right atop the goblin's head, I feel the rush of blood pumping through my veins, the whir of wind as a bolt flies inches from my face and sticks into the stunned hob. It's nastious. Good work, he says, working his goat's foot to load another quarrel. But what in hell is your constable doing? Where's his death wand? He doesn't have one, I answer while Grant struggles alone. What do you mean, he doesn't have one? Broken skitters over. Conti, it's monsters like Billar's house. I know, I know, I sputter to both of them. Can't you shoot it like the goblin? Nastius loads a bolt. Let's hope, he says, then looses. The thick twang of the metal bow rings out over the checkpoint. But unlike with the lesser hob, there's no wet sound of spearing flesh. Just a blunt thud like a fist on a mattress. Damn it! What happened? The girl runs over, reaches into the pocket of my cloak and pulls out a striker, shoves it into my hand. It got caught in its hair. Kill it like you did before, with fire, with the black flame. Will that work? I ask. The apothecary answers, preparing another quarrel. They're like fairies with iron. You need silver to kill them, and this is my last transmuted bolt. But if you can burn off its fur... Hurry! Grant shouts at us, his tone growing desperate, the ogre pushing him back. I drop the staff, pull both satchels of black flame out of my pocket. How far, Broken? Eight paces. Now nine. Ten. On twelve, I ignite the satchels and aim just how we practiced outside the vault, counting the six seconds, trusting the clan wisdom that they won't explode in my hand. Not yet. Not yet. Then on the count of six, I pitch them in the direction Broken points my free hand, Hear them hit the snarling hob and erupt into fire blue and black as the shadow of pre-dawn. The ogre roars, and for maybe half a minute its iron breath mingles with the stench of singeing hair. Nastius takes his shot. The bolt cuts through the air, riding the twang of steel released of its tension. Four hundred pounds punches through burned hair and skin, through muscle and bone into the heart of the ogre. Grant gasps his relief as the hob slides off his partisan. Hearing him, I realize that I'm doing the same. It's only after the threat is dead that we notice the people who've gathered around, the myriad whispers, the hurried feet of merchants eager to get into the city. They cheer when the Marigold Watch arrives on the scene to confirm the hobs are gone. Nastius directs them to where the pact was done, then we're all brought in as witnesses to testify in front of the pontiff and the council. It's an exciting story, and by the time we're done, 
I've forgotten all about the reward until the pontiff mentions that the amount is to be divided, tithed, and taxed separately. Between us, Southerners and Gnostius of the Apothecaries Guild, it's 76 marigold golden coins, 38 each when split. And for some perspective, if that gold were in coppers, it could fill my purse at least 50 times. Once we're finished with court, I let Grant and Nostius work out the sale of Billar's house. While they handle business, Broken and I browse the town, exploring the smooth, paved streets, sterile and silent save for the noise of merchant caravanners. They're filing into the market square, setting up their wares, peddling to perfumed, silk-shoed city dwellers. The prices they pay nearly make me faint, exhausted as I already am, but there's something here for which I can't stand to wait another day. So I listen and the girl watches till we find the soft-spoken Van Edwin in his cart of curios. Congratulations, he says as I come to collect my order, and thank you for ending the quarantine so quickly. Saves us all quite a bit of money. Van hands over the transcription of legends and the wide-brim magician's hat. The latter I place right atop my seer's head. She squeals. A present? For me? One to keep the sun off and your thoughts in. Then I show her the book, The Legends of Gerard the Giant Slayer, and to my disbelief, she hugs me. It catches me off guard, faster than my reflexes can flinch away from the contact out of fear of the agonizing pain I might cause the broken girl. Yet she wraps her arms around my waist, thanking me for the hat and the storybook and for saving her from the hobgoblin and ogre. We'll have to thank Grant, too, is all I can think to say. No one has ever praised me like this before. I think of my dream and wonder if that could really become reality.